Well, praise the Lord. Amen. He is truly worthy of our praise and worship. Let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 24 through the end of the chapter. Uh, Genesis 1, 24 through 31. If you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> this is God's word. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after each after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to every living thing that creeps on the ground which has life, I have given. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be blessed by the reading of your word, and we pray that you would change our hearts through this text. Allow us to know you more through it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, for the past, uh, past five Sundays, five weeks since the end of January, we've considered together each day of the creation of the heavens and the earth. We'd, we've heard of God's authoritative word going forth as he sovereignly brought about something from nothing. In fact, everything from nothing. We heard of his bringing forth light to shine upon and illuminate the darkness which engulfed the formless elemental features of this planet, elements which stood suspended in a vastness of nothingness. Right until that moment, he began to form and shape and cause his light to shine upon the very earth that you and I are standing upon this morning, and all in a single day, followed by the expanse, not only of the earth, but to the ends of space itself, all in another single 24-hour day, before summoning dry land to appear to act as barriers for the waters on a third day, when oceans and seas and lakes and rivers and streams were formed instantaneously by this land that was then covered with lush vegetation, Uh, Fully mature fruit bearing trees and plants with their seeds which blanketed this now shaped and formed and habitable globe all in the first 
three days. Three literal 24-hour solar days, a time frame which was solidified by what he did on the fourth day as he appointed the lights, plural. So not only did he say, let there be light, but now let there be lights, stellar bodies, planetary objects, the sun, the moon, and the stars made for the service of those who would come two days later to serve as signs for their days and their seasons, months, and years, along with the billions and billions of galaxies with their trillions of ginormous stars and the vastness of space, yet, taking the same amount of time, he shifted his focus back to this world, back to this planet, as he filled its skies and its seas with swarming creatures, creatures with life in them, with conscious life. It's a new work performed on this fifth day as those formed seas now teemed with fish and the Skies above were swarming with living, breathing, flying creatures, even those little sparrows we talked about last week, right? All of whom he knows personally. Personally, sparrows who again reminded us of a theme that has begun to develop in our time here in Genesis 1, this constant theme we've come back to week after week after week. The creation was good. We've seen it. Over and over and over again, in fact, five times in five days, God saw what he had made, and it was good. He observed that it was good. In fact, it was beautiful. It was majestic. It was awesome. It was perfect at this point in time. And if we're being honest, even now, in its corrupted and cursed state, even in the environment that we all live in today, this creation is still beautiful and majestic and awesome in many ways, but... What we've said throughout our time together is that we must guard ourselves from the ever-present temptation to give more of our attention to or devote more of our admiration to the created things than we do to the one who created all things, right? We are often astonished and preoccupied with the ways of creation, it's true, but we ought to be more astonished and preoccupied with the ways of our creator, right? And that's been our aim ever since that first week, ever since Genesis 1-1. We've prayed it, remember? Uh, Like Moses, Lord, let us know your ways that we may know you. And by his grace, he's done just that. He has revealed his ways to us in this first chapter. And so this theme makes sense, right? How crazy would it be to live out our short lives here on earth, devoting more of our time and focus to, I don't know, the stars, for example, the Wonders of the seemingly endless universe, the planets and vast solar system, the patterns of the sun and the moon and the stars and their courses above. How crazy would it be for us to devote devote more of our time meditating upon the wonders of the planetary objects than we do to the one who placed them in the skies in the first place? Uh, Than we would the one who set them in their courses above in the first place. Same for this planet. How ridiculous would it be for us to devote our short, tiny, vapor-like existences to this world, to the things of this world, even the beautiful things, the oceans and the lakes and the forests and the jungles and the destination getaways, the exotic bird-spotting tours or the deep-sea fishing trips, without then 
stopping to recognize and subsequently falling on our faces in sincere worship and adoration of the one who brought all these things into existence by the mere power of his word. When you think about it that way, it's not long before you realize the the sheer foolishness, the craziness, dare I say it, the madness of those who spend these short temporal lives worshiping the creation, including themselves, rather than worshiping the creator. It's crazy. It's madness. May we never find ourselves numbered among them. May we always be careful to not let ourselves be taken captive by the alluring nature of the created things, but rather may we be intentional about continually recalibrating our focus, continually refixing our gaze upon the glorious nature of the one who brought it all forth by his omnipotent, sovereign grace. Amen? Amen. What a joy it's been. What a, what a joy it's been to consider this powerful, divine demonstration of the earth's creation. And it, and it continues today, even here as we get into this sixth day, the creation of mankind. Not before we read of his bringing forth terrestrial or land animals. Look with me at verse 24, second point in your outline. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. It was so. Now, a couple quick notes about this uh, 24th verse here. First, we see this term, living creatures, again. Same terminology as verses uh, 20 and 21 when he spoke of the fish and the birds. This word used here is nephish, or, uh, which describes, again, uh, conscious living things. Uh, different from other created things that we've heard of so far, even the plants. Uh, these living creatures, from the fish to the birds to the animals, these living creatures, they have substance in their being. They have a soul. Not necessarily a redeemable soul, not entirely like our souls, but again, a conscious awareness of their existence, okay? These are living, breathing creatures. And specifically, three kinds of creatures are brought into existence on this sixth day. Cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. Now, these are all descriptors of land animals and their relation to human beings, to man, okay? So this term for cattle here, It's used to describe domesticated animals, specifically created for our benefit. Cows for milk, oxen for plowing, mules for carrying heavy loads, etc. Next, we see the creeping things. Okay, These are all the things which we see crawling on the surface of the ground. The mice, the rats, the lizards. Maybe best described, I've heard it described as animals whose legs don't make up a significant amount of their bodies. That's a good descriptor. Little creeping things. Finally, we have the beasts of the earth. Now, we may consider uh, these the wild animals. These these may be considered wild animals. Undomesticated animals. I suppose lions, tigers, bears, and the like. And we can't neglect the possibility of there being animals we don't even know much about. Dinosaurs, for example. Dinosaurs of various kinds. All other kinds of creatures we wouldn't even be able to adequately describe this morning. But in this case, in its most basic sense, this verse talks about Animals for service, animals that scurry about on the ground, and wild, untamed beasts of the earth. Another interesting observation is how Moses said God made the beasts in verse 25. God 
made the beasts of the earth after their kind. Why didn't he use the term create or that barach we talked about last week like he did for the fish and the birds? Why made now? Well, Henry Morris has said this, the reason for the apparent anomaly undoubtedly is that the art of the act of creation in verse 21 is that of every living soul, not only of sea and air creatures. Since this soul principle, which we would call that new work, was created on the fifth day, there was no need to mention it again on the sixth day. The formation of land creatures merely involved new types of organization of materials already in existence, including the nephish or soul, as well as the physical elements. He made them. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing of the ground after is its kind. And God saw that it was good. It was good. Just like that, again, incredibly, the whole of the original animal kingdom came into being uh, in an instant. And, and I would remind you what's really incredible is that if he knows every sparrow, well then, he knows every other living creature as well then, right? He knows of every one of the cattle in the field. He knows of every stubborn donkey. He knows of every blue whale, every ferocious lion. He knows all the giraffes and all the pandas. He knows of all the dogs and all the cats. He knows of all of his creatures. He said, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves on the field is mine. From the massive blue whale to the brown bear to the gray squirrel, all the way down to the little pinky mouse. He knows them all, right? Remember, his omniscience is without limit. He knows all things about all things. He knows every bird of the sky. He knows every fish of the sea, every beast of the field, whether great or small. So have no fear, for you are worth more than many rodents. In fact, you are worth much more than many rodents, much more than many sparrows, much more than even many cattle or wild beasts. You are worth more than, much more than any of these animals. In fact, you're, much more worth, you're worth much more than them because, because there is a major, and I mean major, distinguishing mark which separates us from every other creature in existence. Okay, I'm going to ask you to look with me again at verse 26. Verse 26. But before you do, I want you to focus now. Before you do, I want you to just pause for a second. And I want you to put your place, put yourself in the proper frame of mind to truly grasp the magnitudes of these words, okay? Many of us have probably read these words hundreds of times in our life, maybe thousands of times, but let's allow them to truly sink in this morning. Let them resonate deep within our hearts and within our souls this morning, Okay? Everything has been building up to this point. Everything has been building up to this moment. This is the climax of creation. This is the culmination of creation, the motivation behind the earth's preparation. This is what it's all about. Everything we've talked about for two months has been leading up to this point right here in verse 26. Are you looking in your Bibles? Please look. Verse 26. Look down at the Bibles. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the 
cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God made man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. The light, the expanse, the land, the seas, the plants, the trees, the lights, the fish of the seas, the birds, the cattle, the creeping things, and even the beasts of the earth, all of it, All of it was part of the earth's preparation, preparation for human habitation, for our great, 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 however many times great ancestors, all for this moment right here when God said, let us make man in our image. But wait a second, us? Who's this us here? Let let us make man in our image? Who's the us and who's the our in verse 26? Well, of course, there's much speculation among the scholars and the historians, much disagreement and division on the meaning of these words, uh, us and our here, even though the answer is clearly given in verse 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. The us and the our is God. But surely it can't be an allusion to what we think it is. No, Surely God wouldn't be so forthright in the declaration of his true nature, which he would go on to so plainly reveal throughout the rest of the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments. No, no, no. There must be some other explanation here. There must be some deeper, abstract, profound, theoretical meaning that is really only able to be deciphered by those who are the most spiritual among us, by the folks of highest learning and greatest conceptual, albeit theological, comprehension. Why, some have even said this is obviously a majestic title that God uses of himself, almost like the royal us. Yeah, this is the royal we, that this is not uh, only an insinuation of, but an intensification of the divine majesty of God. Well, what does that mean exactly? What what is the royal we? What is this? uh, Well, here's one well-known example, and since Lighter's here, I'm not going to say it in the accent like I planned on. Uh, I I can't do it. (laughs) After the United Kingdom had been asked to arbitrate a boundary dispute between Argentina and Chile, King Edward VII issued the uh, adjudication of the requested arbitration, which began thus. Now. We, no, no, I'm not going to do it. But listen to what he says. Now we, Edward, we, Edward, by the grace of God, king of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and of the British dominions beyond the seas, king, defender of the faith, emperor of India, etc., etc., have arrived at the following decisions upon the question in dispute, which have, which have been referred to, still speaking of himself, our arbitration. He's the we, he's the our. That's what's known as the majestic plural. It's very majestic. And some folks have said, yep, that's what Elohim is doing here. Uh, He's simply drawing attention to his royal majesty, okay? Seemingly uh, neglecting that not only is this the first, uh, excuse me, not only is the, the very name Elohim already in the plural form, the plural noun of El or God, elsewhere even translated gods, 
But the, the grammatical construct of majestic pluralism wasn't established until the 12th century AD. Okay? So that's a big stretch. I don't think God used that. Now others would say, no, 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 no. This is not the royal we that he's talking about here. This is clearly God speaking to the angels. He's speaking to angels, to the heavenly body, to the angelic host, which he know he made either on the first day or the third day. Remember, he asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who set its measurements? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Those are the angels that are singing there. Those are angels that are shouting for joy as the foundations of the earth were laid. So obviously they were there, probably from day one, but certainly before this moment on day six here. It only makes sense then, according to some, that this us speaks of God's turning to the angelic host and saying, all right, guys, let's get on with this. Let's make man, let's create man in our image here. But that's just as ridiculous as the royal us concept here. Where are we ever told that we are created in the image of angels? Now, angels have taken the form of man, the appearance of man, but not the other way around. We weren't created in the likeness of angels, but in the likeness of God. If we were created in the image of angels, then he would have told us that, but he didn't. He said, in our likeness, in our image. Whose image? God's image. That's right. We see it over and over and over again. Again, both in the Old and New Testament. Now, Lord willing, we're going to spend all next week looking into these seven words. Let us make man in our image. All next week, in, in much greater detail, which means we're not going to do it this morning. But I will say this. I, I will say this, though. Based on what God reveals about his true character throughout the remainder of Scripture, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that this is a clear reference to the triune nature of Elohim of Yahweh, that this is God the Father, one member of the triune Godhead speaking to another or both of the other members, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. His Spirit, whom we've already read, was hovering over the waters before he declared through his word, let there be light. Now he's taking counsel with them, saying, let us, let us make man in our image. This should be clear to everyone when we consider how he's revealed himself in the rest of the Bible, in the rest of the text. But should we feel comfortable giving this, uh, if we go into like a debate forum or a lecture on the Trinity with Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 as our proof text? Should we use this? Probably not. But should we feel comfortable giving it as an example of the first mention of the triune nature of God with a slew of other texts that come later to back it up? Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Psalm, you know, Isaiah 43 to name a few, Isaiah 48? Yeah, we should. We should feel comfortable with that. But again, more on that next week. For now, what is, uh, what is it about this image and likeness that's so special here you know, none of these animals have gotten this treatment. This is the first mention of these two words. Uh, image, likeness, meaning it's another new work. It's even new or distinct from the newness experience on day five when he brought forth living things. Now, now there's this distinction between all living things and human beings. You know, we are much 
much different from the animals, you know. We are distinct. We are separate from the animal kingdom. We are separate from the honey-making bees and the fish in the seas, from the birds who float in the breeze, and yes, even the chimpanzees who swing from the trees. (laughs) Can you believe such a powerful deception has overtaken our society? Can you believe it? Can you imagine how powerful a deception would have to be to convince not only a single person or a group of people, but millions and billions of people that they are nothing more than walking, talking monkeys? I think about this all the time. How many, many people in our society, how maybe even the majority of people in our society think that their lives, their existence upon this planet are no more significant than that of a nose-picking, rear-end-sniffing chimpanzee. Like, like they have been convinced, persuaded that their lives are of no more value or worth than that of an animal. And they believe it. They believe it. How hopeless how heartbreaking, how tragic this is. That's the best word for it. It's tragic. It's tragic. That's not a theory. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's an evil deception brought forth by Satan himself because at its root, at its core, it's a rejection of our being made as image bearers of God are being made in the image of the living God, a God whom the devil, the ruler of this world, hates, despises, which means he'll do anything to destroy this truth, including convincing people that they are nothing more than intellectually advanced primates. And a lot of us in here, a lot of us believed it. I believed it. Oh, yeah, we've all seen the textbooks, right? I can remember, clearly, seventh grade, Mrs. Morris's class. I... I, I, (laughs) I was fascinated by this picture of that little monkey growing up into that strikingly handsome, tall, athletic, bearded man. (laughs) I can see it clear as day here. First, you got this little fur ball. His hands are dragging on the ground. Then he starts getting a little taller. He starts walking upright. All of a sudden, he starts losing all the hair on his body. Though some migrated up to his newly formed, ultra-enlarged unibrow, right? Why, just a few... Frames later, he's completely hairless on his body. Now he's rocking a full beard and a bright red mullet. (laughs) The guy at the end is pale white, of course, because he's the pinnacle of their racist little theory. Yeah, I said it. (laughs) It's racist. Satan would have you believe that, quote, ever since the the, uh, writings of Darwin and Huxley, human beings actually diverge from apes specifically the chimpanzee, at some point between 9.3 million and 6.5 million years ago. I don't have to say anything about the point three. I know what you're all thinking. You know, I prefer that chart that came out a few years later that had that morbidly obese bald guy at the end with the heading, this genius thinks we came from monkeys. Yeah, it'd be hilarious if it weren't so tragic. It's really shocking to consider. It's almost like you want to grab these people and say, wake up. Are you kidding me? Wake up. 
You have been lied to and, and deceived into thinking that there's no difference between you and the beast of Genesis 1.23. And, and you bought it. You, you bought it and you live out your days continuing to buy it. And you've convinced your kids to buy it. This is tragic. It's degrading. It's degrading to humankind. It's degrading to kids, women. No, no, no. We, we were made in God's image. That doesn't mean we look like him. It doesn't mean we, he looks like us, though he did in his incarnate form when Christ took on human flesh. What this actually means is that we are like God in his essence, okay? We share some of his attributes, his communicable attributes. We we're certainly not omniscient or omnipresent, divine or eternal, but we have the capacity for love, right? We can show mercy, we can have grace and kindness, we can extend kindness to people, we can communicate truth, right? We're capable of rational thought, making rational decisions, and not just for a reward like a banana or like some smelt or a dog treat, but... Because we know, we know that the decisions that we make will have an impact on our lives, not only our lives, but on the lives of those around us. And more importantly, the the decisions that we make will have an impact on our relationship with our Creator. Animals don't have that knowledge, they don't have that. That's what the word in there means, by the way. Let us make man in our image, in essence as. Mankind is made, created in essence as God himself. And because we have been made in his image, we then have the ability to then respond to our creator, to have communion and relationship with our creator. Tom Constable said it way better than I can. Okay, He said this, quote, Image and likeness are essentially synonymous terms. Both indicate personality, moral, and spiritual qualities that God and man share, i.e. self-consciousness, God-consciousness, freedom, responsibility, speech, moral discernment, etc. These distinguish, uh, these distinguish humans from the animals, which have no God-consciousness, even though they have conscious life. Some writers have called the image of God man's spiritual personality. That's a great way to put it. Animals have no God-consciousness, though they have conscious life. We, we both have souls, in some extent of the word, living souls, but only man is spiritual. Only man has mind, soul, and spirit. There are no spiritual animals, nor are there spirit animals, for that matter. Evolution in either form, atheistic or theistic, is a lie. It's a lie from the father of lies. And I'm here to tell you, don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie. You were created in the image of God. You were created in the likeness of the triune God, which again, we'll dive into more next week. But for now, it's important to note that humans were created in the image of God and for a specific purpose, okay? Namely, to have dominion over the animals and the whole earth. Oh, yeah. Remember, all this, it was all prepared for us. 
Humans were given a, a commission, a mandate, a responsibility, oversight of all the earth, all the living creatures. Verse 26 is clear. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We're not animals. We have dominion over the animals. What she expands on in verse 28, it all starts with a blessing. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps upon the earth. I put man's, mankind's domin- domination there in point four because these words for subdue and have dominion are military terms, meaning to conquer and rule. We'll go on to name the animals, train the animals, domesticate some of the animals for our service. This doesn't mean we abuse the animals, of course, just like subdue the earth doesn't mean we abuse the earth, but rather we recognize God's gracious gift in providing all these things, not only for our benefit, but ultimately for his glorification, if that is, we belong to him. He even says of the plants in verse 29, then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which, is, which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed. It shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything—excuse me—everything that creeps on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. It's all been prepared for us, for our use, for us to utilize, subdue, and conquer, which comes again through the divine blessing of multiplication. Here he says, man. Woman, only two at this point. This is not a general, or specific, uh, but, but this is a specific mandate. Man, woman, Adam, Eve, be fruitful. Multiply, have babies, reproduce, fulfill my purposes for mankind as managers and stewards of my earth by producing offspring, training them up to walk according to my ways. Again, all ultimately resulting in God's glorification. This blessing of multiplication, which he gave both pre-fall and post-fall to Noah, were given according to the parameters by which he would go out to, go on to lay out for us. He'll, he'll go on to say, Adam and Eve, husband, wife, Noah and his wife, Noah's sons and their wives, man and woman become husband and wife, then mother and father. It's a family unit. Okay, this is another institution of God that Satan is actively trying to destroy today, and he's doing a pretty good job of it in this culture. Now, it needs to be said, again, this isn't a general command or mandate for everyone and anyone to have children, nor is it a mandate for individual couples to have as many children as they possibly can. This is a pre-fall mandate for Adam and Eve specifically to be fruitful and multiply, to bear offspring after their kind, to increase, to grow, to fill the earth with children who will eventually grow up to be men and women who will hopefully recognize the provisions of the Lord and walk in obedience to his commands. Now, having said all that, over the coming weeks, Months, we'll continue to dive into these blessings and these mandates, including the ones to be fruitful and multiply. Meaning, 
We're fully expecting to see an increase of the number of little babies here at Lakewood Bible Chapel sometime around Valentine's Day. Now, if you think about it, we've averaged about three to four pregnancies throughout sermon series, which have included early church persecution, the end of the world, the wrath of God in Romans 1, and the horrors of eternal, <laughs> the horrors of eternal torment in hell. So, as we get to the later half of Genesis 1 and 2, I'm thinking it'll only be natural to get those numbers up a little bit. Get get them up a bit. You know, we have to set a goal. Is Monica here? (laughs) We have to set a goal as a congregation to have Monica throw a baby shower every other week. I'm just kidding. Every month. Once a month? You know, I I said this in our elders meeting. That's what I said in the elders meeting a couple weeks ago. The guy says, well, why don't you practice what you preach? <laughs> Lead by example. I said, okay, let's move on to the next agenda item. <laughs> Lord's will be done, right? Pretty incredible stuff here on day six. God makes land animals and man on the same day. He blesses them. He gives them a charge. He reminds them of his glorious provisions for them with that vegetation, food, okay? Which, which by the way... It, It appears that even now, uh, our now carnivorous animals ate. They ate the leaves. They ate the the vegetation pre-fall. I don't know what this looked like. I don't know if the dietary needs change when man sinned, if the larger meat-eating and meat-tearing incisors, excuse me, meat-tearing incisors appeared when the curse came about. I don't know that for sure. Neither does anybody else. Nobody knows. It's all speculation. It's all just hypothesis. None of which are worth our time to discuss today. Nobody knows. Here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. Here's what we know for sure things look like on that sixth day, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Not just good, but now very good. Very good. Why? Because all was as it's supposed to be. All was as it was supposed to be. It was very good. I can't even imagine how good this was. I can't imagine how good this good was because I've never lived in this type of environment. Neither have any of you. None of us have experienced this level of goodness and blessedness on the earth at this time. All we've known is how to operate in a world and a culture that is corrupt and cursed, right? But at this point, at this point in creation, we are told God observed all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. Very good. Moses concludes this chapter by reemphasizing the duration of creation, stating emphatically that all of this, this whole divine work, was accomplished by the Lord Almighty in six literal 24-hour days, complete with morning and evening in each day, before resting on the seventh as, as an example to his people, which, again, we'll consider together in a couple weeks, but not before one last reminder as we close our time in this creation week, okay? One more reminder. One final exhortation to not fall into the temptation of exchanging the truth of God for a lie by worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. The temptation is real. It's real. Many things, many even good things in our creation that can distract us, take our 
focus us off of or shift our gaze away from our Lord to lead us astray to, God forbid, even devote our lives to at his expense. I mean, from nature to art to food to sex to family to friends to work to comfort to exercise, leisure, wealth, clout, societal influence to travel to entertainment, hobbies, technology, culture, music, sports, There's almost an endless amount of things, a number of things that that can divert our attention or turn our hearts or thoughts away from the Lord. I know this. I live here too. Which is why I wanted to conclude our time on the sixth day here by reminding everyone of the ultimate end of all these things. Okay? I want you to turn with me to the end, in fact. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. That way you can see it for yourself. You don't take my word for it. You just look in your own Bibles. It'll be better. Yeah, Revelation chapter 20. The end of the Bible, the end of the world as we know it. And I want this to be a reminder to us of two things. Two things. One, the everlasting nature of the human soul. And two, the temporal nature of literally everything else in all of creation. Everything else. Look with me at verse 11. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the deed were, uh, excuse me, the dead were judged from the things which were read, written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You know what this scene is talking about here? The dead that John is talking about here? These are unbelieving men and women standing before the judgment throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great white judgment, great white throne judgment, where they will be tried where they will have evidence presented against them, which are their deeds, their works, all of their deeds, all of their works, along with all the words they've spoken, all the thoughts they've ever thought. And the one who will preside over all the hearings is the same one we spoke of last week, the one who knows all things, who knows all things. And he's the same one who will then pronounce the final sentencing upon these dead, unbelieving men and women, which we're just told is an eternity in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever apart from the love of God, apart from the common graces of God's creation, which they were able to experience upon this earth. All of this will be held against them as they refuse to bend the knee to him as Lord or give thanks to him as God. But instead, they became futile in their thinking. They became futile in their thinking, loving the things of this world, rejecting the gospel of God and his Christ in the process, the Christ who came into this world that he spoke into existence, who 
was born of a virgin, born under the law, but who kept the law perfectly, only to be crucified and killed and buried and raised from the dead on the third day, all for sinners, all for those whose names were written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. Where we failed, he prevailed. Therefore, we are reconciled to God based on his sacrifice alone. Again, more on that next week, but for now, this throne, this throne. This great white throne. Where does it sit? Uh, uh, where does this throne sit here? I'm, I'm not sure. I assume it's suspended. Uh, perhaps even like the elements of the earth, the waters in Genesis 1, uh, 2 that were just there. There before space, as we know it was created, before light shone upon it, before it was formed, prepared for habitation. I don't know that for sure, where, where this throne will be. I don't, I don't know. I do know it's not going to be upon this earth. And I do know it's not going to be in the heavens that we've been reading about these past two months. How do I know that? Because as John says in verse 11, the earth and heaven as we know it, the same heavens and earth brought forth in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, fled away. And no place was found for them. They will flee from the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ who spoke them into existence. They're gone. The earth and everything in it will be gone. Poof! Gone. Everything you and I have ever known, everyone you and I have ever known, Everything that you and I have ever seen or tasted or touched or smelled, gone. But not everything we've heard, right? For the word of God remains forever. Even Jesus said that. He said, heaven and earth will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. They will not pass away. The word will remain forever. And the souls of men will remain forever. Angels and demons remain forever. And of course, the eternal God is from everlasting to everlasting. But the heavens and the earth, they will one day be gone. When will this happen? We don't know. Again, Jesus said, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Peter would go on to confirm this in his second epistle. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements, he's talking about the earth, will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be found out. He then said this, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat? I can't think of a better way to conclude the six days of creation of the world than to consider the uncreation of the world. And to ask ourselves, in light of this, what sort of people ought we to be? Seems kind of silly 
to worship the creation when we consider it's all going to burn up and flee someday, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem crazy? Okay, so let's not do it. We can subdue the creation. We can utilize the creation, marvel at the creation, even enjoy the creation. Enjoy it. We can still experience the blessing of being fruitful and multiplying, but may we never love this creation in the ultimate sense. May we never love the created things more than we love the creator, right? Again, next week, Lord willing, we're going to consider together the great us and our of verse 26, whom Scripture will go on to reveal as the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all active participants in not only creation, but also salvation. If you've never trusted in this triune God for salvation, I would implore you to do so this morning. I would implore you to, at all costs, avoid the possibility of your standing before this great white throne but instead to cast yourself upon his mercy today, to hear his word this morning and believe in his gospel, to receive his free gift of salvation, which the Father graciously bestows on all who belong to him, all those whom he has called to himself, all who would but turn from their sin, turn from this wicked, corrupted, dark, and decaying earth that will one day burn, turn from this evil world system and turn to their creator by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. I would implore you to, with the rest of the saints, long for that day when he will take us home. Oh, what joy shall fill our hearts, right? That day when we bow in humble adoration and there proclaim our God how great thou art. If, if you hear him calling you through his word this morning, I bid you come. Come to him. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Ask him to cleanse you of your wickedness. Ask him to wash you in the precious blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he is both able and willing to do so today. If you would but come to him. Come to him. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to again open up your word, to be instructed by it. We thank you for even having the ability to live and breathe in the first place, but not just like the animals who live and breathe, but that we can actually commune with you and have relationship with you, fellowship with you. Not only in this life, but for all of eternity. We're so grateful for that. We're so grateful for your son. We're so grateful for the gospel. We're so thankful for your word and that you have, by your grace, chosen to reveal these things to us. It's such a privilege. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,